Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Fearscape Media Network. Exploring the unknown. One podcast at a time. Hi, listeners. Listen to the Books and Boosts podcast with me, host Anna Temperley, and Marlena Lear as we crack open a bottle or two or three and dive into some interesting books, airing the first Wednesday of every month. Bye. Bye. Hello, dear friends. I'm your head, Mr. Lord Stephen Gearhart. And I am your co-mister, the man with no name, Lance Wayne. And together we are the misters, misters of, of the... the... Uh, let's try it again. The misters, the misters of the... the, 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 the Lance! The misters of the dark! Don't shut up! Ugh, whatever. Join us wherever you stream your favorite podcasts or go to mistersofthedark.com where we'll be discussing all things horror from films and books to everything in betweensies. We also have the occasional victim. <laughs> I mean, guest. <laughs> Only on the Fearscape Mania Network. <laughs> Shut up, Lance. I always get the last laugh. <laughs> there are phenomena that exist all around us. Kids playing above something and above something unknown flies over and disappears. People driving at night seeing huge creatures cross the road. People waking up to find their cabinet door ripped open in their kitchen. Strange things happen every day around the world and seemingly at the same time and area. But are these occurrences but are connected? These occurrences connected? This, this is what we are here to explore and are trying, and are trying to understand. Join us on our journey, to uncover, on our journey to uncover what we call the, the Convergence Enigma. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another fantastic episode of the Convergence Enigma with Josh and Stefan. We are still in the midst of Alien Abduction April. That's right, Alien Abduction April. I am your host, Stefan Gearhart, and I am joined, as always, by the man whose face looks like a dolphin without a nose, Josh Rutledge. Yeah! Woohoo! I would kind of. That's my, that's my best. Yeah, dolphin. you just have a giant blowhole for a face. That's, that's good. I mean, it's kind. It, I guess, sure. I mean, I, I mean, I, I do have a a big blowhole in the fact that my nose is big and I blow from it. I don't think your nose is that big. 
Do you think I could blow up a balloon with your nose or with the blowhole? I don't know. Challenge accepted. <laughs> Challenge accepted. Oh, <laughs> could you imagine the nastiness inside that oh. balloon? If you, what if I could blow nose? one in each nostril at the same time? At the same time, man, that's some serious pinching, though. Like you For gotta, real. you gotta really, or it's gonna shoot out of there. I gotta like wrap it around my nose. All right, scientists, if you're listening, engineers, <laughs> we need you. <laughs> I need your help to blow up balloons I need with my your nose. Help. This is serious. This is UFO related, I swear. Like swear. an episode of Dude Perfect. <laughs> Anyways, uh, we are talking tonight about uh, one of the most famous uh, alien abductions uh, on the planet. Um, one of the earliest ones, uh, even before Betty and Barney Hill, and uh, Antonio Via Boas uh, in Brazil. He was a farmer, and boy, this happened. He was abducted by aliens in 1957. We're gonna be, man, we're gonna be seeking answers into this one. That's for sure. Uh, for alien abduction, April, Josh. Yes, uh, almost. You could almost say it's April abduction. Maybe we abducted your April. With yeah, aliens. we have abducted I your. I don't know. I you <laughs> might be trying too hard, but I follow you. I follow you, and that's uh, the scary part. That is, yeah, that is absolutely the scary part. Uh, also, just a reminder, we are here on the UNX radio network uh, here at uh, unxnetwork.com uh, here on the radio, uh, as usual, every Wednesday at 8 p.m. You can find us there first and then listen to the podcast afterwards uh, on the Fearscape Media Network at fearscapemedia.com or simply just go to the convergenceenigma.com and there you can check out all the episodes, even our archived episodes, even from when we were way back when we were Fearscape Paranormal Podcast, way back in the day. Way back. Um, What we gonna do right here is go way back, back (laughs) in the time. No, baby, no, baby, no, baby. Uh, but yeah, you can go to the convergenceenigma.com slash store as well. Check out the amazing uh, T-shirts that we have. So many uh, paranormal and just goofy and weird themed. And it's it's not all T-shirts. Any of the designs, yeah. you can get on mugs and yeah, whatever tote you're bags, into. Yeah, if you want a tote bones, bag or you want a, you you know you want an magnets. ascot, you want a convergence enigma ascot, go for it, man. Yeah, I mean they're they're scarves. But yeah, you could use it as an ascot. You can use it as an ascot. Big ascot. <laughs> Some guy named Scott is like, hey, getting close there, pal. You're getting awfully close there, pal. Uh, anyways, uh, let's go ahead and get moving on. Before we get into the uh, abduction of Antonio Villaboas, uh, let's go ahead and get to our first segment of the week, which is Psychic Word of the Week. Psychic word of the week. And now, the psychic word of the week. Comes from the Encyclopedic Psychic Dictionary from uh, Juju B. G. Blutzer, PhD, rest in peace, honey bear. Uh, we love you, but we never got a chance to meet you. Uh, this week, Josh, I flipped through the pages instead of picking a number. Uh, flipped through the pages, landed on page 546, and I looked down, and the phrase that caught my eye this time was seance trumpet. Seance trumpet. Seance trumpet. Not the same uh, trumpets that brought down the walls of Jericho, I don't think. No, no. Those were, say it is a trumpet. Say it is a uh, trumpet. It's yeah. a trumpet. Bring the walls down. 
Uh, but Seas Trumpet here, uh, the definition reads, a long, narrow megaphone used by etheric world intelligences during a seance to amplify their voices so that they can be heard by the physical ear. Made in three tiers so that it will collapse for easy carrying, uh, material is lightweight, such as aluminum or heavy cardboard. The trumpet is magnetized in the sun and rain and then protected in a case when not in use, handled only by the trumpet medium. So okay, so at first I was confused there, Juju B. Um, uh, so at first, was I, because it sounded like they were describing something that didn't exist in this plane. Right, that's what I thought at first as well, that it was the entities themselves that used a trumpet, but I guess it's more of the hearing aid trumpet that we saw in the like 1900s and uh, late late 1800s yeah. that it's that it's a receiver, not a not a recall. Yeah, exactly. No, this is uh, so they can hear it. So I guess. Boy, this must be real old school because I have never seen uh, the well, seance trumpet. Well, but I mean, it says cardboard too. cardboard hasn't been around that long. Well, I think that that was just, hey, we can't afford the oh, okay. uh, <laughs> we can't afford the other back stuff. When, back when cardboard was top notch, like like I, I, I always found it really interesting that the grand staircase in the Titanic, the floor was linoleum because right. at the at the time it was like linoleum was like the top notch stuff sure it's the same thing like velcro when velcro first came out holy free holies could you imagine how expensive that was yeah. and now so cheap because right. anybody could make it it's so simple to make and and that's the thing it's like once that that time period you know yeah goes out anybody right. can. so bottom line cardboard seance trumpets used to be the creme de la creme yeah, exactly. Or as my friend Paul says, the creme of the creme. Way to way to uh, fr- franglish that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's ridiculous, but I love him. Yeah. Um, but anyways, yeah. So uh, 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 yeah, seance trumpet. If anybody out there is listening, if anybody has one of these, yeah, like especially one of the aluminum collapsible ones. Like I just imagine a Boy Scout cup. Like that's. <laughs> That's what I imagine it to look like. If you've got one, I want to see it. Send us a picture. Uh, also, either just post it in our social media or send it to contact at the convergence enigma dot com. I want to see it. Yeah, I'd like to see it, too, because right now what I'm picturing is those horns that they use at like the soccer games that that like were outlawed there for a while. Like the oh, blow the blow horns. Yeah. Like that the crowds were using and causing a distraction, but I don't think that's what it is. Like that guy that used it at and and when we were in high school at all of the um, uh, uh, things where we got all the students together. Pep rally. (laughs) Pep rally. Thank you. And he got busted (laughs) for it. Um, But anyways, anyways. yeah, moving on, moving on. I'd like to see a picture as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, yes, we can Google it, but I'd really love to see if if anyone else has heard of this or if someone or if you're someone that uses it, how effective is it? That's what I want to know. That's what I want to know. Anyways, Josh, let's go ahead and move to our next segment, which is Encounters from the Fearscape. Encounters from the Fearscape. 
Yeah, so we've got a, a longtime listener here, Becky Winterfox. Becky, thank you for all your wonderful stories on our Facebook group. If you're not a part of our Facebook group, uh, it's for our entire network. Um, but there uh, is definitely focused on the paranormal for sure. Uh, but the Fearscape Media Network fan group, it's a Facebook group. Um, she is always posting some of the most amazing stuff. She's a traveling nurse and just like, we won't hear from her for like two months and she'll be like, sprinkle, sprinkle, sprinkle. Here's yeah. a crazy story. <laughs> so, uh, but this is one of uh, her most recent stories uh, sent last month to us. And I, I, I'm glad because we don't, you know, we don't do the encounters every episode anymore. And uh, so I'm glad we get a chance to uh, check this out. So check out Becky Winterfox's story. Uh, so I'm back on the road. I'm a travel nurse uh, after a few weeks home. Post seven months in California. I'm in Des Moines now, and I was talking with my new co-workers about paranormal experiences we've had working in healthcare. And trust me, we all have stories. Uh, once we had two patients die in one night. One was expected, as I care for hospice patients as well as acute skill, uh, and one was not. It was extremely active, needless to say. So we all started sharing our experiences, and I shared one that has always brought me to tears. Back in 2013, I was training a brand new graduate nurse on end-of-life care. We had a gentleman that we all adored who was actually actively transitioning. It was apparent he would be making his journey very soon, so we checked him over, talked with him, and stepped out to the nurse's station. Before we reached it, though, his door slammed shut. The new nurse, let's just call her Mary, jumped and took about five steps back. I looked at her, and the fear in her eyes was inexplicable. I told her to calm down that this was common in end-of-life situations. I, I told her we needed to check on our patient because if I can help it, no one begins their journey alone. Uh, at first, she refused. So I talked with her and explained that there's just some things we can't explain. But right then, our patient needed us. And so we walked back towards his room with her still several steps behind me. I knocked on the door. I announced myself and slowly opened it. As I rounded the corner toward his bed, an elderly woman dressed in a floral print muumuu stood beside him, holding his hand and stroking his hair. Mary said she must have come in when we were headed to the nurse's station as we had not seen her. But I, I knew better. The woman turned and looked at us, smiled, and then shooed us away. I took Mary's hand and told her we were leaving. She had this confused look on her face and didn't move, and I literally dragged her out of the room, telling her it was time and we did not belong there. We waited about 10 minutes, and I told her we needed to go back into his room and see how he was doing, because I already knew, but I didn't want to scare her any more than she already was. She asked me why, especially since he had company, so I told her that he didn't have company, that he was already gone. She really did not want to go back in after I said that. But we knocked, we announced ourselves, and we entered the room. He lay there still, peaceful and smiling, with his hand laid out as if he were holding someone's hand. He was gone. She really and I told Mary about to open the window. We still do that, and, and I still teach that. 
and we began our aftercare of our patient. I heard Mary suck in her breath, and she was pointing at his bedside table. And there was a double frame with one side, a photo of an elderly woman in a floral print muumu, and the other, her death notice from three years earlier. It was his wife. It took a while for Mary to calm down and process what she'd just experienced. We talked it over for the rest of the shift, and from then on, each time one of her patients was close to their journey, she would call me to be with her. She never really got used to it, but she learned to accept it and be a positive part of the process. See, most deaths I've attended are beautiful and peaceful, and this one was just beyond exceptional, and I felt very honored to have been a part of this experience. Thank you. Becky. Yeah, um, I, I remember reading it and getting cold chills, and, and then listening to you here, it still gave me chills. Uh, just the, the thinking about the uh, the reverence uh, of the occasion um, and, and the situational awareness of Becky to to know when it was time to leave. Right? I would so. love for her and my sister to work together, man, because my sister, who is also a nurse, not a travel nurse, but a behavioral health nurse, but she still deals with patients who pass on and things like that. And I would love for them to meet up and just be a fly on the wall for that conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Here, wear this lapel mic. <laughs> yeah. Could you guys uh, go get coffee, but wear this lapel mic? Thanks. Um, but no, thank you, Becky, as always, for sending those. And you guys can always post those on our social media or in the Fearscape Media Network fan group, your own stories, your own encounters or experiences, or just send those to contact at theconvergenceenigma.com. Or even on the convergenceenigma.com, you can submit a sighting if you want to and, and just send it to us there. However you want to do it, if you've got them, send them to us. We, we yeah. love these stories. Love, to hear them. love them. Uh, but Josh, let's go ahead and move on to our topic tonight. Antonio via Boas. Yeah. Antonio via Boas. April uh, is alien abduction month. It's abduction April alien month, alien abduction alien, right? Is it's amazing, 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 amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, so this actually happened, uh, like you said, uh, back in 1957. 1957. Oh my God. 1907. <laughs> Um, the actual abduction uh, happened on October fifteenth, nineteen fifty-seven, but the uh, the strange encounters actually began ten days earlier than that. Okay, okay. Um, so Antonio is twenty-three years old. Uh, he has a brother, and um, they work. Uh, they have a farm, a, a couple of farms, and some plantations that they work in the evening hours to avoid the heat of the day. So. Um, on uh, a little after 11 p.m. on October 5th, uh, Boas uh, spotted a bright white light in the sky as he opened the window to get some air. Um, later that night, after sleeping for a while, he awoke and looked again to find that same light still there, moving toward him as he looked at it. Frightened, he slammed the shutters, waking his brother, who watched the same astonishment as the bright light played through the shutters a while before leaving. Um, on the 14th, uh, around uh, around 9 to 10 p.m., uh, 
uh, Boas uh, and again uh, his brother were out tilling the fields when they both witnessed an extremely bright light a little over 300 feet above their heads. Uh, Boas, leaving his brother behind, went to investigate, and as he got closer, it suddenly darted away at tremendous speed to the opposite end of the field. And 300 feet's closer than you think. Yeah. I mean, that's much closer than you think. Uh, you figure, like, a tall pine tree is probably, like, maybe 100 to 125 feet. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's maybe two trees, you know, two or three trees stacked on top of each other. It's still pretty close. Yeah. Um, But he approached it again, and again, it darted away back to where it had started from. Uh, This maneuver repeated no less than 20 times. Jeez. Um, At last, with uh, Boas, you know, discouraged, he just returned uh, back to his brother. Uh, Boa said that the light kept still for a few moments longer in the distance. Now and again, it seemed to throw forth rays in all directions. Uh, the same as like the setting sun. Um, then mm. it suddenly disappeared as if it had been turned off. Mm. Uh, he says that I am not quite sure if this is what actually happened, for I cannot remember if I kept looking in the same direction all the time. Maybe for a few seconds, I glanced elsewhere, so it may have lifted up and disappeared before I had time to look back again. Interesting. Um, so the next night, after so you got this has now happened twice, right? Two nights. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, this is already pretty rare. Yeah. So the next night, he decided to work the fields alone, um, <laughs> which I can't say that was a wise choice, but, you know. <laughs> um, each their own, man. Yep. To each their own. Uh, when he was at the same spot uh, that he and his brother had witnessed the light the night before, he saw a reddish light uh, in the sky, which zoomed toward him at remarkable speed. And this is a quote so quickly that it was on top of me before I could make up my mind what to do about it. About 160 feet above his head, it stopped suddenly. This light was so intense that he couldn't see the tractor's headlights. And it was 1 a.m. Boa said it looked like a large, elongated egg. Uh, I wonder if this is the first egg-shaped UFO sighting. Because, Um, you know, uh, and and we'll cover this in some of my contactees, episode but they they definitely saw some egg-shaped ones yeah and i, and I think uh when we uh talk about the pascagoula case i think they may have described it as being egg-shaped as well mm-hmm. so interesting theme we accidentally had yeah exactly um so the uh, with several technical features about it three legs extended from beneath it uh and as it settled uh, to the land um, uh, Antonio took off running to his tractor in terror right now that sounds like war of the worlds yeah <laughs> um, he said when he reached it the tractor and its lights died making his escape um, out the other side and running towards the house his arm was grabbed by a small figure he says it only reached to about his shoulder. 
in strange clothes, which he violently shoved away. Three more small figures surrounded him and lifted him off the ground by the arms. That's, that's scary, man. So uh, now this is already to- in distinct contrast to the alien uh, sightings of the 1950s. Yes. Um, but I think a lot of what we've what we've seen or covered or have seen covered of the alien sightings of the 1950s, a lot of them were very U.S. centric. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this obviously happened in Brazil. So. Yep. Um, different experience uh, so Antonio described these creatures in great detail uh, once he got into the craft he said all of them wore a very tight fitting suit made of soft thick unle- unevenly striped gray material this garment reached right up to their necks where it was joined to a kind of helmet made of a gray material that looked stiffer and was strengthened back at nose level. Their helmets hide everything except their eyes, which were protected by two round glasses, like the lenses in ordinary glasses. Through them, the men looked at me, and their eyes seemed to be much smaller than ours, though I believe that they may have been the effect of the lenses. All of them had light-colored eyes. They looked blue to me but this i cannot vouch for yeah and i know i already know and i'm sure we'll get into some skepticism and things like that but how much some people say it sounds like the day the earth stood still you know and stuff like that um it, it does say here that above their eyes um the helmets looked so tall that they corresponded to what the double the size of a normal head would be uh, probably there was something else hidden underneath those helmets placed on top of their heads, but nothing could be seen from the outside. Yeah. Uh, right on top, from the middle of their heads, were sprouted three round silvery metal, metal tubes. Um, it says here, I can't tell whether they were made of metal or rubber, which were a little narrower than a common garden hose. The tubes, which were placed one in the middle, and one on each side of their heads were smooth and bent backward and downward toward the back. Hmm. There they fitted into their clothes, um, but one went down to the center where their backbone is, and the other two, one on each side, fitted underneath the shoulders uh, at about four inches from the armpits. Right. And again, I mean, he's describing something that was not in pop culture, right? Right. So if this is something he's legit seen, he's describing it with his own experience. And being a farmer, I mean, he may already have less experience. I'm sure he doesn't have a TV at that point. You know, it's Brazil. You know, hell, most Americans didn't have it. At have that a TV, point. right? Yeah, at that at that time, right? Right. Um. So he said uh, he didn't notice anything, no hump or lump to show where the tubes were attached. <laughs> nor any box or uh, uh, contrivance hidden underneath their clothes. Mm. So, you know, it's like if the tubes are providing air or oxygen or something, there was no indication that they went into a device or a mechanism to do that. Right. 
their sleeves were narrow and tight fitting to the wrists where they were followed by thick five fingered gloves of the same color that must have somewhat hindered their movements. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Uh, it says, as to this, I noticed that the men weren't able to double their fingers together so as to touch the palms of their hands with the tips of their fingers. The difficulty did not prevent them from catching and holding me firmly, nor from deftly manipulating the rubber tubes for extracting my blood. Mm. Uh, those overalls must have been a kind of uniform for all the members of the crew wore a red badge the size right. of a pineapple slice on their chests. Yep, that's the one thing that I remember from this is that is that big red badge. Yep. Uh, and, and it says that sometimes it reflected a shiny light. Not a light of its own, but reflections such as those given by rear lights of a car when another car lights it up from behind. Mm-hmm. Um, it says from the center badge, there came a strip of silverly, silvery metal, um, which joined onto a broad, tight-fitting claspless belt, the color of which I can't remember. So this is like a sash, right? That's right, what he's describing right. here. Um, no pocket could be seen anywhere, and I don't remember seeing any buttons either. The trousers were also tight-fitting over the buttocks, thighs, <laughs> and legs. Buttocks. And their buttocks. Um, and there was not a wrinkle nor a crease to be seen. That's something that is a popular thing as well, which tells you it's some sort of material that we you know we're not huge on yet i mean i mean hell i don't index polyester you yeah. know i don't know when polyester yeah. became a thing i'm looking that up right now but um you know yep something um, along those lines yes i mean they're always described as wearing tight fitting uniforms i mean even in um even in the travis walton case Right, you know, he de- he describes them as wearing tight fitting coveralls. So right. yeah, I mean it's it's always a, you know, it's funny that they're all like in movies and stuff. Even the Greys are always portrayed as being naked, right? But they're right. but they're never described that way, right? Never. Yeah, it's really really interesting. You know, and we've said this before. What if that is their spacesuit? Yeah. Well, and I mean the the fact that you know what if. You know, what what killed off a lot of indigenous people in the Americas when the Europeans came, right, was mm-hmm. disease. Because we they, they brought diseases that the indigenous people here in the Americas had never experienced before. So it stands to reason that either A, they could have disease that we have never seen before. Or B, we have disease that they've never seen before. So that right. would I make mean, sense for them to protect themselves. Yeah, I mean, that's what War of the Worlds is all about. That's how we end up defeating the aliens. Spoiler right. alert is the common yeah. cold. Yeah. Not so common anymore. Anyways, <laughs> um, <laughs> it says that uh, there was no visible hem between the trousers and shoes. 
um, which were actually a continuation of the former being part of the same garment. It also reminds me a lot of what our astronauts wear into space. Mm-hmm. Like it's just kind of one big, what appears to be seamless unit because of the way that they fit everything together and it locks into place to create an airtight environment inside the suit. That's what it reminds me of. So, yeah, absolutely. And obviously in 1957, there were no astronaut suits uh, to be seen anywhere. So. Just a Sputnik suit. So um, they were, uh, their soles of their shoes were different from ours. They were thick, about two or three inches thick. <laughs> and a little, so they already had platform shoes. They were going to go disco yeah. dancing later that evening. Hey, they they probably got you know um, Napoleon syndrome like Tom Cruise and have to wear platform <laughs> shoes. <everywhere. laughs> Lifts. <laughs> um, and it says that they were a little turned up or arched up in the front. Oh, they, they were, were turned. They were turned up. <laughs> well, you know what that reminds me of mm. is how um, like elf shoes are always kind of oh yeah uh, presented. Like kind of turned up in the front, so it's like again here. There's like a callback to, to fairy folklore. Yep, so, I was about to say the same thing. Yep. Um. So, it says here that uh, uh, the tips look like those. Well, actually, so it, it goes on in the, in the article that I found. It says just the tips look like those described in fairy tales of old, uh, though the general appearance was that of a common tennis shoe. Hmm. Um, which are not Nikes in 1957. No. Some PF flyers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, back when uh, um, I remember I bought, or my mom bought me a pair of um, uh, kangaroo shoes. Oh, yeah, with a little pocket. The pocket on the side. Heck yeah, dude. That's where I yeah. stored all my ice cream truck money. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyways, it says here that... Um, they, uh, from what I saw later, they must have fitted loosely, for they were larger than the feet they covered. So the shoes were bigger than their feet. You know what they say with extraterrestrials with <laughs> <the> shoes. <laughs> I wasn't gonna say it, but I'm glad you did. Yeah. Um, it says, in spite of this, the men's gait was free and easy, uh, and their movements were swift. Perhaps the uh, closed suit they wore did interfere slightly with their movements because they kept walking very stiffly. Uh, they were all about my height, so 1.64 meters. So what is that like? One meter is three and a half feet or something like that. Yeah, so around one and that, a half yeah. is around around five feet tall. Let's mm-hmm. say uh, in shoes. Uh, perhaps a little shorter because of the helmets. Um, except for one of them, the one who had caught hold of me out there, this one did not even reach my chin. Uh, all seemed strong, but not so strong that I had fought one of them. And one time I should have been afraid of losing. Uh, I believe that in a free-for-all fight, I could face any single one of them on an equal base. It's, it says here it's interesting to note the similarities between uh, Boas's descriptions of the creature's clothing and that of fairies. Uh, the unevenly striped uniforms sound not unlike the sort 
uh, part, party co uh, colored clothing design one might expect on an elf or perhaps even an evil jester. Yep, that's what I was um, going to say. Uh, even with bent hoses sticking out of their head like tassel bells on gesture caps. Or like a darrow or tarot. Yep. I mean, a darrow, sorry. <laughs> yeah, darrow. Well, Thank and you. Well, in, 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 you know, there's a, there's a book out there um, that has a conversation back and forth between Ray Palmer and mm -hmm. Richard Shaver in, in a series of letters. And in one of the letters, it says, Shaver's writing to Palmer and he says, Hey, you represented the Darrow wrong. They look just like us. They yep. are walking around amongst us all the time. And so, um, you know, even, even the long noses and stuff that, that Ray Palmer presented them as was not correct, according to Shaver. So thanks, Ray Palmer. Yep. Also, one last call on if anybody out there has the original Shaver manuscript. Yeah, man. <laughs> you know, if it's a PDF copy. Uh, you know, so yeah, I don't care if you're taking pictures with right. uh, an old Kodak. Send us yeah. all them pictures. Yeah, I don't know if it's a series of Polaroids that you mailed to me. I don't care. But um, so at this point, uh, while resisting as best he could, Boaz found himself being pulled up a flexible metallic rolling ladder into a hatchway, which closed behind him. Um. It was so neatly closed that no seam was visible to the naked eye. He found Which himself is another is another commonality. Yep, very much so. Very much so. Um, almost organic in nature. Mm -hmm. um, he found himself inside a small square room. Uh, no furnishings. Uh, it was brightly lit. Uh, and he, he describes it as the same as broad daylight. Um, it was brightly, brightly lit by recessed square lights and the smooth metallic walls. Interesting. So suddenly an opening appeared from the seamless wall and Boaz was led into another room. The only furnishings visible was an oddly shaped table that stood at one side of the room surrounded by several backless swivel chairs. Something like bar stools feel like it's like those chairs from men in black the movie <laughs> that, he, yeah. that he sits into and yeah, he doesn't know how to sit in it well that's where the egg shape came from right right so. <laughs> um they were all made of the same white metal the same penny also uh the table as well as the stools were one-legged narrowing toward the floor hmm. uh, where they were either fixed such as the table to it or linked to a movable ring held fast by three hinges jutting out of each side of a rib and riveted to the floor. See, now that that's the thing that, you know, the skeptics will bring up a lot. Like, you know, how when Woody Derenberger, when he was on his ship, um, how he saw things that were very 1960s on that yeah. ship, right? Right. Um, and, and now this is a little bit different. These are very futuristic in a sense, but there's still common things like chairs. And, yeah. you know, that's the thing I always think about when I think about an alien species, would they wear shoes? Would they wear clothes? Would they sit down in a chair with a back on it? Right. If they're humanoids. I mean, so, so there's part of me that says that, um, they're, so the, this is probably very rudimentary, but, 
they're walking around, right? They're not floating around right. when they're inside their spaceships, right? So there's some semblance of gravity. And so anytime there's a semblance of gravity, you feel weight. That's what weight is, right? It's an expression right. of gravity. So if you feel weight, you're not going to want to stay in forever. Right. You're going to want to sit down eventually. I mean, even from a, just a comfort perspective. Right. And if they're humanoids like us and they have legs and buttocks and, and, yeah. and joints and that move the same as ours, then, yeah, it should be assumed that their chairs would be similar. Right. Um, you know, if they've got a tail, there'd be a hole in the back for their tail to stick out. <laughs> <laughs> like our elementary school chairs. Yeah, exactly. Has Most that triangle tails. for yeah. for the devil's tails to come out. Right. That's what it is. That's what our nun always used to tell us it was there for, was for our little devil tails to, yeah. to go out through them. Really, it was for when you tooted in class, you could let it just kind of scoot out, scoot out the back. So, <laughs> <laughs> High class um, entertainment here on the Convergence and Nimmo right. with Josh and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I said toot. I said toot. You did. Uh, anyways, um, uh, that says that uh, his abductors then grabbed and held him in place while communicating in sounds that had no resemblance whatsoever to human speech. Uh, he says, I can only think of no attempt to describe these sounds. Uh, so different were they from anything I've ever heard before. These sounds still make me shiver when I think of them. It isn't even possible for me to reproduce them. My vocal organs are not made for it. He compares the sounds to animal grunts. That should be... I don't know we've talked about that before yeah. with other cases. Um, some longer, others shorter, sometimes containing several different sounds at the same time, and other times ending in a tremor. Yeah. Uh, curiously, these creatures then began undressing him, des despite his constant opposition. Uh, they obviously couldn't understand me, but they stopped and stared at me as if trying to make me understand that they were being polite. Which is, um, uh, what was the case? Oh, I think it was the Travis Walton case, where he kind of like lashed out at them and they kind of stopped what they were doing and just kind of stared at him and then left the room. So. Yeah. Um, they're <laughs> just looking at him like, well, this isn't what? Supposed to what happen. are you doing, bro? <laughs> <laughs> um, besides, uh, that they had to employ force, they, um, they never at any time hurt me badly, and they did not even tear my clothes, with the exception of my shirt, perhaps. Once he was stripped naked, they rubbed him all over with a thick clear odorless liquid it's called oil or hand sanitizer or oh maybe uh, and then he was prompted into another room with red inscriptions over the door like scribbles of a kind entirely unknown to us is what he said he would later say that soon two of the figures joined him carrying apparatuses that looked like some blood uh, excuse me they took some blood from his chin leaving small scars that were later noticed by the doctors at the hospital um, and that they caused him no pain and minimal discomfort next up is the succubus 
distinct move here. Yep. Uh, so Boaz says that he was left alone for about an hour and made himself comfortable on a large, featureless, foam, rubber-like gray bed or couch in the middle of the room and had no legs. Uh, so it's like a giant beanbag. Right. That's the way I think of it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> from holes in the wall, from about the height of his head, came tufts of gray smoke that quickly dissolved. At first, Boaz felt nauseated, as though he was being suffocated. Then he rushed to one corner of the room and vomited. And after that, his breathing was easier. Um, this makes me think that they were conditioning the room for the entity coming in to be able to breathe. Mm-hmm. Like there's something where, you know, like, you know, 78% of our atmosphere is, is nitrogen. Yeah. <clears throat> well, maybe they can only stand 56% of the air being nitrogen, but, but for us, it's okay because we don't breathe nitrogen. Right. So you know, they did something to change the composition of the air so that they could breathe and we could still breathe and, you know, whatever. So um, it says here that a little while later, a door opened and in walked a naked woman. Ooh, yeah. Uh, now, Boas did speculate that the clear liquid was an aphrodisiac. Um, and, you know, the uh, one of the investigators says that it was probably a germicide of some kind, which is like what I said to hand sanitizer. Right. Um, so she came in slowly, unhurriedly, perhaps a little amused at the amazement she saw written on my face. This very much starts to me at this point starts feeling like David Huggins story. Yep, very much so. Um, it says I stared open mouth. She was beautiful, though of a different type of beauty compared with that of the woman I have known. Her hair was blonde nearly white uh, like hair dyed with peroxide it was smooth not very thick with a part in the center and she had big blue eyes this is also reminiscent of yep uh, David Huggins um, rather than rather longer than round for they were slanted outward also David Huggins mm-hmm. um, he says it's like those pencil drawn girls made to look like Arabian princesses that look as if they were slit, except that they were natural. There was no makeup. Her nose was straight, not pointed, not turned up, nor too big. The contour of her face was different, though, because she had very high, prominent cheekbones, also David Huggins, um, that made her face narrowed to a peak, so that all of a sudden it ended in a very pointed chin, which gave her the lower part of her face look very pointed. Man, this sounds exactly Just, like the description from David Huggins. Yeah. Except the only difference is is that his um, female had black hair. That's the only difference that I've seen so far. Um, her lips were very thin, nearly invisible. In fact, her ears, which I only saw later, were small. It did not seem different from ordinary ears. Her high cheekbones gave one the impression that there was a broken bone somewhere underneath. But I discovered later they were soft and fleshy to the touch. Hmm. 
so they did not seem to be made of bone. Right. Her body was much more beautiful than any I had ever seen before. It was slim, and her breasts stood up high and well separated. Makes you wonder, and you know, I'm not trying to be goofy or anything, but if it's similar to a penis, right? Like where blood can thicken the skin around yeah. to make it hard, or uh, cartilage, like in your cartilage, nose right? Or yeah. your ears, you know. So. Um, her, it says her uh, waistline was thin, her belly was flat, her hips well-developed, and her thighs were large. Her feet were small, her hands long and narrow, her fingers and nails were normal. She was much shorter than I am. Her head only reached my shoulder. Her skin was white, as that of our fair women here. She was full of freckles on her arms. I didn't notice any perfume except for a natural female odor. And another thing I noticed was that the hair in her armpits was bright red, nearly the color of blood. That is definitely interesting. Um, it says here that also noticed that her pubic hair was also bright red. Um, well, I mean, so not to stop you, but you know, when you get into red hair and blonde hair and things like that, you get into this idea of that that Caucasian gene, especially the milky skin, the red hair, the the ones that are the most um, minority of the hair colors and eye colors and things like that. But there are people that do that. They wonder if these are the talls, right? These are the even though she was short, yeah. um, you know that that's that that our DNA uh, of the folks that have those things. Did that come from the stars? I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 a very good question. And I mean, I think that's what not to not to make this uh, episode Nazi related, but I mean, it's that's where like Hitler and all his cronies were all about is yeah. somehow there was some kind of a bloodline that they you know that was from the stars or whatever, or from Atlantis or, yes, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. So, um. But uh, Boaz goes on to recount that the woman came toward him in silence, looking at me all the while as if she wanted something from me. Pressing herself to him, he understood what her purpose was. I began to get excited. I ended up forgetting everything and held the woman close to me, corresponding to her favors and greater ones of my own. Um, apparently, they had two sexual encounters and performed a variety of acts together for about an hour. Uh, after which the woman pulled away to leave. All they wanted was a good stallion to improve their stock, Boaz said. Um, <laughs> which is also very reminiscent of the David yeah. Huggins case. Yep. So um, He said that he enjoyed the encounter, even if the woman refused to kiss. Um, it, it is note here that you know, he had just thrown up, so maybe the woman didn't want to kiss him for <laughs> another reason. Um, so uh, instead, it said the woman preferred to bite his chin while making sounds uh, that Boas, uh, in Boas's mind, sounded like animal growls. There we go again. Yep. Uh, he said she never spoke. When they were finished, one of the other creatures entered 
and called out to the woman, but before leaving, she pointed to her belly and smilingly pointed to the sky southward, I should say. Then she went away. I interpreted the sign as to mean that that she intended to return and take me with her to wherever it was she lived. Um, he seemed to be concerned or even afraid about the last, for he took the meeting quite seriously and wasn't sure if he was anxious to leave his familiar surrounding or his family. Interesting. Um, after fetching the woman, the creature returned Boas's clothes. He was led back to the room with the stools and the table where the crew sat and communicated with each other in their strange kind of ignoring uh, or language ignoring him altogether he felt calm uh, for I knew no harm would come to me is what he said uh, now he had a chance to take stock of his surroundings he tried to remember all he could he noticed that the walls were smooth metal and hard with no windows anywhere uh, noticing a box with a glass top that had the appearance of an alarm clock hmm. he attempted to conceal it noticing this one of the crew seized it instantly and shoved him back interesting here it says Jacques Vallée said that Boas described the clock as having one hand and several marks that would correspond to the 3, 6, and 9, and 12 of an ordinary clock however although time passed the hand did not move and so Antonio concluded it was not a clock I wonder what it was then I don't know. Um, this is also from Valet. He says the symbolism in this remark by uh, Boas is clear. We are reminded of the fairy tales of the crunchy country where time does not pass. And of that great poet who had in his room a huge white clock without hands bearing the word, it is later than you think. <laughs> yep. Um, the continues uh, the creatures continued to lead him through the ship, pointing out various interesting features, which Boas described at length with a remarkable amount of detail. Boas stressed that there was no doubt in his mind whatsoever that he was aboard a metal craft. The tour was finally over. One of the figures gestured him down the ladder, then pointed to itself to the ground and then in a southerly direction in the sky, the same direction the woman had pointed. Boas was signaled to step back, and the ladder retracted, and the ship rose. The tripod landing struts retracted once again so smoothly that once in place, no sign of the opening through which they had emerged was visible. It stopped a little over 100 feet above his head. Uh, it grew increasingly brighter. Uh, a buzz formed by the dislocation of the air grew louder. And the revolving saucer began to rotate at a terrific speed. While the light turned to many shades of color, finally settled on a bright red. As this happened, the machine abruptly changed direction by turning unexpectedly and producing a large noise, a kind of shock. When this was over, the strange ship darted off suddenly like a bullet southward, holding itself slightly askew 
at such a speed that it disappeared from sight in a few seconds. It was about 5.30 in the morning when Boaz returned to his tractor. So you recall that when this all started, it was about 1 Mm a.m., so four and a half hours. He discovered that the tractor had been sabotaged, that the had the abductors had knowledge of tractor how tractor works and so the battery wires had been detached it says here after uh, for about three months after his encounter Boas suffered various mild medical ailments such as pains throughout the body nausea headaches loss of appetite kind of like uh, Barney Hill yep uh, ceaselessly burning sensations in the eyes. Uh, that's what uh, Keel described as the cosmic clap, yeah. right? Yep. Um, cutaneous lesions um, at the slightest of light, um, which went on appearing for months, looking like small reddish nodules, harder than the skin around them and protuberant, painful when touched. Each with a small center orifice yielding a yellowish, thin, waterish discharge. Right. The skin surrounding the wounds presented a hypochromatic, violent tinged area. So, that is the Antonio Villas Boas abduction case. Now, again, I have to say. What's remarkable about this is is that there was no anything like this before it. Right. There was no, hey, well, we can look back and say Travis Walton saw the movie version of Betty and Barney Hill and had this guy had no Right. I mean, there were abduction experiences in the late eighteen hundreds and some things like that, but nothing like this. Well, and, and to include the sexual hybridity of it all, yeah. I just made that word up. But to add <laughs> that aspect to it, right? Yeah. It's it's a it's a it's a game changer in 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 UFO abductions and alien abduction stories. Yeah, I mean it. it yes, I mean, and this definitely does. We called it out several times throughout, but I mean the the idea there that you know they just needed somebody who could give them good genetic material, right? Uh, to to further the race, and it almost makes you feel like, or almost makes you question, if the things that happened in the two in the two occurrences prior to the abduction were like some sort of physical stamina test, right? Yeah. It first first it it it, it tested his ability to track and logically comprehend the light in the sky. Um, then it tested his endurance by making him run from one field side of the field to the other 20 times it was like a physical exam was occurring and then like oh yep this one's good let's go ahead and get this one going yeah you know and you know he he he's he never faltered on his story he died in uh in 1991 in january 1991 and he stuck by the story of his abduction for his entire life he you know he didn't have some some deathbed confessional or anything like that. And then he has his own Mandela effect here that there are many sources that say he died in 92 when in fact he died in 91, right? It'd be different if it was in December and it was close to the end of the year, but no, he died in January of 1991. So 
very odd odd stuff but um it's amazing how even though this took place in brazil you know the american research groups were a huge part of this like oh, Apro yeah. and stuff like that and well, i mean you heard me talking about valet was down there he yeah was doing investigation. and you know they he was exposed to large doses of radiation and had like radiation sickness when yeah. he came back he's in the middle of farm territory in brazil it's right. not like he was in nevada right in a farm and then we knew that they were working on shit like way early you know it's not it's not like that yeah i mean that well i mean just the just the months after all the things that he experienced uh you know in the months after the occurrence very much points to the kind of things that you have from a radiation sickness type uh situation like you said what's there that you can get that you know you know we did detonate a lot like the world detonated mm-hmm. a lot of nuclear bombs um you know in the periods leading up to 1957 and and in 1957 and it's very possible that you know winds carried radioactive material around the world and, and, it, and it probably did yep. uh, so i mean that you know the skeptic says well that's where um that's where his radioactive uh you know uh, body ailments may have come from but why didn't his family experience any of it why didn't his brother experience any of it it was really uh uh you know, only him who yep. had these things and how these side effects. So, yep. Well, thank you for that, Josh. We're going to go ahead and get out of here though. Uh, thank you so much for all that great information. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about five lesser known uh, contactees from the 1950s uh, to kind of step away from abduction and more of uh, association a little bit still kind of abducted in my opinion but uh that's the case it's going to be uh but thank you guys so much for tuning in to the convergence enigma uh with josh and stefan here on the unx radio network unxnetwork.com as well as a fearscape media network fearscapemedia.com this has been stefan with a reminder to keep your eyes on the skies folks this has been josh the truth is now and remember folks keep searching keep questioning good night everybody good night